This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Windows on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE Intellinews. This week I'm joined by Daniel Bilak, who's the director of Ukraine Invest. We sat down on the sidelines of Strategy Council's Ukraine Investment Roadshow that was held recently in London. Um, you were speaking today just um, at the Ukraine Investment Roadshow and mentioned that you know, the untold story of Ukraine is, is not so much all of the war and the politics and the corruption, but that it's starting to become a base for manufacturers um, and joining the global supply chain, particularly in the west of Ukraine. That's, that's right. I mean, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, the only time people notice Ukraine or write about Ukraine is, uh, is when something bad happens. So I very much appreciate the opportunity uh, and the outreach on the part of, uh, of your organization to talk about this. Um, <clears throat> of course, they're always, uh, you know, it's never black and white. And uh, as I said today, uh, I think that one of the most important things that investors and, and people who don't know much about Ukraine need to understand is that this is a country that is just being built. It started being built three years ago. For last, for, for 23 years before that, it was basically being raped and pillaged by its elites and uh, in, a, in a post-Soviet construct. So we're de-Sovietization, we're going through a process of de-Sovietization now, and uh, <clears throat> at the same time building the new institutions of the country. And as a result, uh, you know, this is a difficult process. But what, what we've already had is because of the competitive advantages that uh, that Ukraine has with very uh, competitively uh, priced labor and the costs of production, as well as the highly skilled nature of that labor, very technically proficient um, uh, workforce. Uh, it's very attractive commercially for, for many businesses. And what we've got is, a, is auto parts manufacturers that have set up in Western Ukraine to basically part of their manufacturing and assembly pro uh, uh, processes uh, to major automobile manufacturers. So does this mean, if, <laughs> if you excuse the comparison, that you, you're doing something similar to what cities like Kaluga have done in Russia, where you're you're attracting these automotive manufacturers who are then, but this is all an export business, isn't it? Kaluga is a, a bit different because um, uh, that was basically investment into the, for the Russian market. Mm. This, is the, the, this is the major automobile manufacturers and the parts manufacturers are going in to build a business for the Russian market. Uh, Škoda, for example, had an operation, uh, still has an operation uh, in Ukraine that builds, that assembles uh, Škoda cars for the Ukrainian market. But the automobile parts manufacturers, this is for export. Right. This is, they, they are, they've set up in Ukraine in order to, to produce uh, harnesses, uh, seat belts, um, uh, starters, uh, all sorts of other, other uh, automobile components that they then export into the EU uh, as part of the European supply chain and global supply chain of, of these companies. And that's a... That's, that's, that's real European integration. Right. That's not signing and, but agreements and talking about lots of things. I mean, this is Ukraine as, as, as part of the European supply chain. And is there any trade restrictions or duties or, or that kind of thing involved well, in that? There, there, there are. There, they, I'm not going to bore you with the stats, uh, but the, uh, there, there have been, not restrictions, but there have been duties in, on both sides. But 
That's one of the benefits of the EU association agreement. For one, it shows you how compelling the, uh, the commercial and the economic argument was for setting up in Ukraine, that even with some of the duties that were put on, uh, uh, on, on the export of some of these uh, uh, products, it's still, they still made money. Mm -hmm. But now, under the EU association agreement, and in particularly the EU-Ukraine association agreement, and in particular the uh, DCFTA, the Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement, those duties are going to come down, and I think over the course of the next five years are going to be eliminated altogether. The duties on the DCFTA, um, but there's restrictions on those two, or rather the quotas seem to be relatively small. That's the, right. The example given is the Ukrainian honey production. They burned through their quota in six weeks, and there was just a report several major other products, you know, they burned through their quota in two months, and so for the rest of the year they don't get any benefit from the DCFTA. But the way I understood it was that those quotas were going to be increased over time, provided Ukraine hit certain benchmarks um, that the EU were, were watching and saying, yes, we're going to open up slowly. Is that the case? I mean, how does that well, actually Well, it's just started. Um, uh, my impression is that uh, it's worked out further faster than anybody anticipated. Um, I think that they may, have, they may have burned through their quotas in that period of time, but at the same time, we're, ta we're undertaking some of the... Uh, we, we've got a great report card from the uh, EU assessment mission that came in from uh, the, uh, uh, Mr. Hahn, the Enlargement Commissioner, and from uh, Mr. Mogherini, from the, uh, the High Commissioner of Foreign Policy, that said Ukraine has just, you know, it's gone further than we expected mm. in implementing the uh, the FTA. So I, I suspect that, that we may be, you know, if Ukraine is going to continue on the, traje on the trajectory on which it is, uh, it is on right now, which has been, you know, for the last four years, despite the problems, mm. you know, government policy has been very consistent. It's been moving towards Europe. It's been liberalizing the economy opening up the economy, transparency uh, throughout, including in public procurement, mm -hmm. uh, which was never had taken place before. And, and so these things that don't get talked about are actually taking place. And I think that if we get another report card like the one we had uh, this time, I think you may see some of those other duties and quotas falling off. Having said all this, at the end of the day, the EU accession is still not on the cards in so much as it's been explicitly taken off the table for the meantime, <coughs> irrespective of you know the referendums that, that President Poroshenko is talking about uh, doing. That leaves you kind of in the middle, though, in Europe, if you're not going to be an EU member uh, on the outside, as it were. Or stuck well, you could be like Switzerland, which is literally in the middle of the EU and yes. not an EU member, or Norway or other these, uh, these other places. But... Frankly, this, this doesn't really worry me because um, the most important thing is that Ukraine develop along the line so that it feels like an EU company, it looks like uh, EU country, it, it looks like an EU country, and it acts like an EU country. Mm -hmm. And that means that eventually it will become an EU country, mm -hmm. uh, whatever the EU looks like at that time too. If there's but, anything left. But, well, <laughs> we'll see. But the... You know, the point is, under the Copenhagen uh, uh, Treaty, Ukraine can apply at any time. Um, I wouldn't recommend it until it was ready. And in fact, the whole point of the EU Association Agreement and the DCFTA was, in fact, to structure it so that essentially the reforms that Ukraine has to implement are similar to those of the acquis communautaire. Mm -hmm. So that when it does come time to talk about 
Ukraine becoming a member of the EU, the heavy lifting's already been done. And all of it, you, you already have these supply chains working. You've got EU companies that are making money in, uh, in, uh, in, in Ukraine. And you know, the more that Ukraine can offer investors, the more investors are going to become pro-Ukrainian and hence influence their governments. Talking about uh, investment, FDI in particular, um, we just brought out um, our monthly report on Ukraine and, and look in the FDI, that it was relatively high in 2013, but it's been crushed by all these events and the, the volume and number <coughs> of projects are way below the historical level, particularly this boom years between 2006 and 2013. But um, this automotive investment you're talking about, you know, there's still sort of drops in the bucket, as it were, and so much as a few pioneering investors have come and taken advantage of the, uh, the low cost base. But um, as a long-term strategy, at the moment, it obviously makes sense to go for manufacturing to make advantage of these low wages, which is still, as far as I understand, at end of Soviet era levels. But going forward, I mean, uh, you have to build on this first, and, and then where do you go? Well, I mean, you've, you've raised a lot of issues in that, uh, in that very short introduction. Um, let's be very clear about what the uh, cost competitiveness of labor is all about. It's, it's, it's not due because this is a cheap labor force. It's due to the fact that the hryvnia lost 60% of its value. Mm -hmm. uh, when it was 8 hryvnias to the, or 12 to the euro, um, the same people looked, uh, uh, look, you know, worked in the same manner, mm -hmm. had the same skill set. Uh, they were a lot less competitive, if mm -hmm. you like. Now they're a lot more competitive because of, of this situation. And, and I think that's really an important um, point to make, is that to look at where Ukraine has come in the last three years. We lost, three years ago, we lost 30% of our GDP, 60% of the value of our currency, and 7% of our territory through an act of aggression uh, that is still taking place today. Mm. Um, we had some less than $10,000 in the consolidated accounts of the government and uh, less than $1 billion uh, in uh, uh, foreign exchange reserves, which accounted for less than one month of imports. And when you look at the fact that Ukraine now has macroeconomic stabilization, currency stabilization, public debt stabilization, we ha are having this year 2.3% uh, economic growth. And in the fourth quarter of 2016, we had 4.7% mm -hmm. of economic growth. That, that's a pretty phenomenal story. It doesn't, you know, doesn't mean everything is rosy, far from it. It means that the government's, and the fact that people are unhappy uh, still, means that the government's reforms, and I mean all the governments that we've had since in the last, two, uh, last three years, have been broadly consistent and are kicking in. The key now is to get those reforms to trickle down mm. so that people feel the, uh, the changes. A lot of that will be uh, felt through decentralization, which is probably the government's, uh, the, the new, the, the post-Maidan government's um, signature reform since, to, since 2014. And that was the basically decentralized decision-making and uh, financial flows from the center to the local level. And the local level, the, 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 the municipalities now keep 60% of the tax revenues collected in their region, which never happened before. So the, these transformations take time. I mean, they, they don't saying, happen overnight. You were saying in April, actually, there's, there's a busy agenda in April specifically. There was what? Right. The next wave of reforms. So we had the first wave of reforms, and now we're having the second wave. The second wave are going, is going to include pension and land reform, which are huge socioeconomic 
uh, uh, impact reforms and, and are going to be quite controversial. But they're part of the IMF uh, package, and so that if they are compliant with the IMF, which they will be, um, that means that that will assist us with the next tranche. Um, a new way, a new system of privatization, because the previous system mm -hmm. has not worked, manifestly not worked, so we have to try something else, and public administration reform, which is which uh, the reform of uh, institutional capacity, as, mm -hmm. I, as I call it, because one of the key things that people need to understand is we have all these problems, and they said, well, you need to reform faster, you need to reform faster. But, I mean, in three years, starting from where we, we as I just said, where we were, I mean, we don't have any institutions in this country to do that. We're building them from scratch. We inherited post-Soviet institutions because Ukraine never had its own mm -hmm. before. We never had our own judiciary. We never had our own government. We never had our own uh, 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 parliament. You, you put it very nicely <clears throat> saying we know what the problem is, but the problem we have is there's not enough people to fix the problem. Precisely. And therefore, we need the assistance of business. We need investors. We need uh, IFIs uh, to help us come up with those solutions, to implement them faster. But again, what an, what an investor might want to see quickly is may not be politically uh, and socio from a from a socioeconomic standpoint for the average Ukrainian palatable. So it has to be sold first. Mm. The people need to be prepared for these changes, or or they could they could backfire very very badly. So that leads to to two questions: that you are in a very actually competitive field here, in so much as all of these emerging countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, basically competing for the same FDI dollars. And everybody has got something else to offer. You know, you've got Novi Sad uh, in, in Serbia, you've got Albania, low cost. Um, you've got Russia with this huge consumer market, which makes it interesting so you can sell locally. Well, what are Ukraine's USPs? I mean, what do that's, you say? A, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, I, I want to start by saying that actually we, we, even though I don't like the whole notion of Ukrainian exceptionalism, um, but we are the last frontier market left in Europe. We're not even, we haven't even reached the level of emerging market yet. So, I mean, we're still a work in progress. And that means that there are phenomenal opportunities mm. at, for people who are uh, prepared to take the risk. And, and that's one of my jobs, is to make that risk understandable uh, for investors and to help them to uh, mediate th that, those risks. We have the comparative cost advantage, obviously. Uh, we have a highly skilled labor force. We have a, a strong uh, aero, aerospace and defense industry. We have agribusiness, which the agriculture, the agribusiness and agricultural sector. We have brains and grains. Is really what I what, what I what I like to say is that we have very highly skilled, well-educated people. Um, we have <clears throat> through this, you can see it as the legacy of the aerospace and defense sectors as well as uh, we are one of the largest IT hubs mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, for outsourcing and platform, uh, 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 platform development in, in the world. Uh, and our land is, is, our great, is, is our other great asset, which means that we are very, we're, we're an economic powerhouse worldwide in terms of grain exports. But that's just the beginning of the story. That's the low end of the value chain. Mm -hmm. Our challenge is to move uh, existing companies and attract new investors into moving up the value chain into processing, grain processing, food processing, manufacturing, uh, commercial lending, uh, that kind of stuff. And then agribusiness is very closely tied to infrastructure. So you see a lot of the big agri holdings and traders actually building big terminals in Odessa, Yuzhny, uh, Chornomorsk and other, and other ports. 
Uh, it impacts uh, the way that we're trying to transform our state railway company to be able to provide better services to get those uh, grains uh, uh, to the ports. Um, you know, retail is... Well, you have about 43 million people, so I mean, there's actually a decent site, which makes you top whatever it is. I mean, Poland, Russia, Germany, and Ukraine, you're all on about a par in terms of size. Well, Russia's bigger, but um, you know, it's a large consumer market. Well, it's a, it's a potentially large consumer market. The consumer market is, is still developing because of the drop in the exchange rate. Mm. Um, Ukrainians feel much poorer, of course, than they did three years ago. Uh, perhaps freer, but poorer, which doesn't, you know, leads to a lot of dissatisfaction. They like the climate. They remember what it's like. Once you take something away from somebody, uh, it's it's uh, it's very difficult to regain that. Uh, even though objectively people understand why. The um, what I wanted to say about our neighboring countries is that they are all they're not emerging markets anymore. The Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, Hungary. These are EU countries. They are fully integrated into the German supply chain, if you like, uh, and uh, they're, you know, we're integrating into their systems. Mm. Um, they have 4% unemployment. They're actually coming to Ukraine, hiring Ukrainians to go to, to the EU. We had 1.3 million Ukrainians left for Poland last year. I have a niece from Western Ukraine who's working in Poland now, and that's a real challenge for, for us. Uh, because we have to attract I mean, those to people, hang, but to hang, hang on to, to the other, uh, to, to the people that we're educating, mm. you know, and uh, to have them contribute to our market. We want to attract investment that is going to be added value. Modern, we need to have the prime minister always talks about having a modern economy <clears throat> that uh, will create high value jobs and that will become sustainable to build a prosperous Ukraine. So. All prime ministers want that for their economies. I mean, it's kind of obvious. And the added value, particularly in the tech and, and science, uh, is, is where it's all going uh, as we transition from a manufacturing society to services and increasing the information. However, this is sort of long-term aspirations, but you have a very practical problem of business environments, operating environment, in order to get these investors to come. And everybody's looking at Ukraine, because like you say, it is the last great catch-up story. So when it takes off, everyone's going to make a 1,000% return in a year. But that's the thing. You have to get the snowball effect started. Yeah. And that's about putting in place an operating environment, right. rule of law, properties, you know, <clears throat> contracts. Well, the biggest, the biggest challenge we face is security of property rights and the, and the predictability of the system. Actually, the predictability of the legislative process, uh, I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable with. Um, you know, the government has been pretty... Uh, consistent uh, and uh, uh, fairly um, uh, robust in terms of the kind of legislative initiatives it's taken under the under its reform programs. Those reforms don't always get the attention or go through Parliament as quickly as they want. But I mean that's just part of the issue of of, of the politics. I think though that <clears throat> the issue of property rights uh, is is fundamental. As a lawyer, I I, I completely understand that. The uh, this the legacy of this is that we, we we still have we're still struggling to reform the deep state. When you come out of the uh, a post-Soviet environment or any mm. uh, a totalitarian state, the the most powerful institutions of that state are the security services, and they're the hardest to reform. And we're just starting to do that now, including the including the courts. We're now undergoing a complete overhaul of the Supreme Court. 
in order to you know ensure that there's a stopgap uh, for some of the abuses that took place in the past, which leads directly <coughs> into the you know the big question on corruption, and right. that's been you know the IMF and, and uh, European Union they've all linked all of their money to progress, visible yeah, of progress on that, and there's been you know some action in terms of the e declarations. But um, the follow-through has been disappointing, and, and uh, I think Ukraine is being criticised for that. Or rather, it's become a cause celeb. I mean, how, how, I mean, it's there as well, but how big a problem is it and how to get over it? I mean, the, the issue about corruption, and it's not, 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 being, not enough is being done, and as you said, there, there's no follow-up. I, I really think we need to understand the terms when, when, when we use them. Um, there are different ways to fight corruption. You could lock up people who are uh, doing bad things. That, that is probably what most people have in mind when they talk about it, this culture of impunity that uh, has developed over 23 years and that still has not been rooted out, that people feel that they can cut deals and, and, and get away with uh, bad behavior. Um, I would personally like to see much more uh, action on that including from the, especially from the law enforcement agencies. So there's a law enforcement punishment side mm. that, uh, uh, and we've, we just had a situation where for the first time um, are newly created, and we have been doing things in this area, we've created a number of anti-corruption institutions, including the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, which mm -hmm. no. uh, landed its sort of first big fish with uh, the head of the uh, tax administration. And that's very exciting because, you know, I'm looking at the DNA in, in Romania, which is a sort of similar body, um, independent uh, anti-corruption with, with some powers to, with some teeth as well. And this, as you say, is the first time it's, it's acted. Right. And, uh, you know, there's now, there, the next step is the, the notion of putting together an, a special anti-corruption court. Um, again, these things, you have to be very careful with these institutions because just saying we want to set it up is not enough. You need to understand who is going to actually be on these. It's very important to get the right people, as we did with, the, with NABU, with the uh, uh, National Anti-Corruption Bureau. Um, but there's another aspect to anti-corruption which is probably more important in the long run, and that is ensuring uh, the stability of the courts and the unbiased judicial decisions, which, as I said, is now we're, there's, a, there's a complete overhaul taking place in the Supreme Court, which will then trickle down into, in, uh, down into the system. And finally, institutional reform. And this is where, the, where, the, where we do have something, uh, I honestly believe, we have a lot to say and don't get enough credit for. And that is the fact that we've really opened up the, the, the system of public administration, including public procurement through the Prozoro system, through e-declarations. I mean, we did follow through with the e-declarations. Mm -hmm. e I mean, now, now Naboo is investigating some of the people that, uh, because they criminalized the, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, if, you, if, if you cheated on your declaration. Mm -hmm. And that made people really think twice. Now they're going after the people who did declare uh, what they have, but they're not quite sure where they got their ill-gotten goods from uh, if they've been a, a state employee for most of their lives. So all, all of this is a process. And, and the, whole, the way you fight corruption institutionally, as I said earlier today, is you shine light in dark corners. Mm. And the, uh, the whole notion of, 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 of getting as much as we can onto the internet. We now have online registration of businesses. We have a land registry system that's online. We have the public procurement system that's online. You know, and everybody's expressed satisfaction with that. We understand, okay, that's great. What have you done for me lately? So we're, we're now moving to this next stage of reform. And aside from the next four signature reforms that I discussed, 
uh, pensions, land reform, uh, uh, privatization, and uh, public administration. We're also doing sectoral reforms, health reform, education, judicial reform, as I said. And, and these, are, these, are, these are things that are all taking place in, a, in an environment where the institutional capacity to A, make these laws, and B, implement them is very, very weak. And that's the danger, and that's where we need help in order to strengthen that. You know, we, what we really need is for people to help us put these things together. I'll give you an example. We, one, of the, one of the most successful um, uh, institutional reforms that was also a big fight against anti-corruption was in the gas sector. Mm. That was a monster. Nafta Gaz, which was our state-owned gas company, represented 6% of the deficit of GDP. 6% and up until 2013. It now is zero part of that deficit and contributes to the state budget. So it gives you an idea of the scale of the theft that was taking place. And that's been reformed. And how did we do that? We restructured the gas market distribution and generation system. And we did that by having the Energy Community Secretariat. Uh, Ukraine is a member of the uh, ener energy, uh, EU energy community and it is part of the, the package responsible for implementing the uh, uh, third <coughs> Uh, energy package of reforms, and in fact, it's one of the first countries to have implemented a new uh, law in this area. I think Serbia was the first one. So these outliers, so-called, are, are, are actually moving forward with these. And the Energy Community Secretariat drafted the law. It went through the process here and went through the Cabinet of Ministers, it was reviewed in Parliament, and it was passed. And now we're doing the same thing with the electricity market law. It's a little more difficult because we have vested interests, so-called oligarch interests, that are that are fighting the last stand, if you like. Uh, uh, because, uh, but but the process is moving, and I believe it's irreversible. And and a lot of these oligarchs are now are now being forced out of their positions of privilege. One of them controlled in 2013, before the before the revolution of dignity, mm -hmm. controlled 20% of Ukraine's GDP. He's now no longer a billionaire, mm -hmm. and by somebody's uh, calculations because most of their uh, the, for the oligarch business model was <clears throat> uh, uh, procurement fixed uh, fixing procurement uh, tenders uh, direct uh, subsidies from the state budget into the regions or their businesses and VAT uh, scams I mean this isn't rocket science you don't have to have a, a Harvard MBA to to make money in that kind of a business model. But haven't you put your finger on, on <clears throat> actually probably the biggest difficulty for transforming this country is the vested interests are extremely powerful and a lot of them have their representatives and some of them are representatives in the Rada. And so that, you know, as a representative body is representing as much oligarchic interests as it is the people's interests. But they're under pressure. I wouldn't call them extremely powerful anymore. I, I think they're influential still. Uh, because some of them do have uh, their uh, factions in power. But, you know, um, deputies also uh, see which way the wind blows. Mm. And some of those factions are becoming very unruly and are... The, 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 this is not the, uh, a, a strong party disciplined organization. There are factions within those factions. So it's it's a very it's shape shifting. There's a lot of uh, well, the winds uh, of the, history are blowing in your direction. Well, but as well. I, I think the I think the, the issue though is you look at what happened, uh, and I think the issue in the Donbas is hurting uh, one of the uh, so-called oligarchs uh, their business interests massively. You've seen what happened with Privatbank with mm. the uh, nationalization of Ukraine's largest bank, which had a 
monstrous $5.5 billion hole in it. Mm. I mean, the, the scale of theft that the, that the shareholders were, yeah. were perpetrating. Uh, the head of the, I was at a conference this week uh, or last week uh, with the head of the where the head of the national bank said they thought that 97 percent of the related of the lending that that bank was doing was related party. In fact, it turns out it was 100 <laughs> percent. But they but they put together great services. They were they had 50 percent of the retail market. People loved the services they were providing because they realized if we provide good services, we can suck people into providing into into putting money into this bank. We've we've you know we've gone from 187 banks down to 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 almost 100 or less than 100. No, in terms and, of counting off your successes, the bank reform has been stunning. The gas market has been stunning. No, there's the, more to do. Yes. Well, look, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah. It was a great. Thanks pleasure. for the opportunity to speak with you.